communication lacked at the beginning of it all when we really needed it. The first time the phrases global warming and climate change were used in a scientific paper was in 1851, where (laughs) some guys, they studied the urban heat island effect in central London when like the industrial wow, revolution the was just starting to happen and they realised yeah so London was warmer than it ever had been and yeah. by its surrounding areas so then global warming seems like it will be a thing from the use of coal and so then, 170 years ago and people were already measuring it as a local thing affecting their city yeah and that's the thing why did I hear about that today from you yeah. Th- that's yeah, This is the same thing like how I got angry in January at the economics conference, going, what the hell? Exactly. How can this stuff not be being effectively communicated to everyone? Because if everyone doesn't have a fundamental understanding to be able to make better decisions at the ballot box, we can't get meaningful change. Yeah. I'm here today with David Only. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. I have my big pink coffee and we have a new blanket on the table that is much nicer than the old carpet. It's lovely to be back in the studio. Of course, some things have changed. Our listeners might hear a slight difference in the in the acoustics of the room. If that comes through, well done to you. We're also joined with a very special guest, someone I've known for many, many years, Amelia Chaplin. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Now, you're a climate communicator, which uh, we like to differentiate from a climate activist, and you've done your honours thesis on the rising sea levels. Am I, is that right? Yeah, that is correct. Last year, painfully. Hey, honours <laughs> is always painful. That's the point. <laughs> there has to be honour in it. Well, it's the same thing to finish that and then run screaming from uni. <laughs> it's the insane thing to, after that, go back and go, I need more. <laughs> Absolutely. So you're going back or are you happy to have escaped? I'm going to go back next year. Well done. A year off to recuperate. Took a year off and a good year to take off at that. (laughs) Going back to do a PhD this year would have been more stressful than necessary. So what's the plan at the moment for the PhD thesis? So I really want to look at, draw upon my honours thesis and look at sea level rise, but in the Pacific region. So kind of Vanuatu, like Fiji, Kiribati and all those kind of regions because they're incredibly under threat, especially right now. Like, you know, we're losing islands to the threats of global warming and sea level rise. And there's just so many issues that kind of extend from that, like the soil becoming more saline, not being able to grow crops and not being able to like refrigerate and store food in case of cyclones. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there. There's a lot of work that has been done. But Do you need people to carry your stuff? (laughs) If you're offering. We can carry stuff, can't we, (laughs) Tim? Well, quite, I'm, I'm quite good at it. No, no, we, <laughs> I would say it's probably one of my top five skills. Um. <laughs> well, your resume's perfect then. And I figure I can just follow him around and try and help. Absolutely. And in doing so, we can do podcasts from beaches. Oh, imagine okay. that. This used to be a big beach. So I have to carry <laughs> the podcast <laughs> stuff and Amelia's stuff. Well, how about I carry the podcast stuff and you carry Amelia's okay, stuff? Okay, that sounds good. But, but I'm guessing all that Amelia's going to have is a ruler and a laptop, so maybe I'll carry Amelia's stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's very easy work delivering, um, measuring sea level rise. You just uh, well, no, that was yeah, going to that was going to be my next question. Is okay. Of course, we can joke that you could take you know historical records of in this year when it was this really high tide, it got to this point, and all over Japan you have these big stone markers that say don't build below this point. 
you know, that are historical. And each time things have got higher in Japan, you get one of these big stone markers higher up the hillside. So how actually do you measure rise of the sea? Yeah, so it is quite a difficult process. Not so much my forte. I look more so at the, like the management and policy side of it, but it is taking into account where storm surges are reaching each year and where the sand dunes are kind of receding at the same time. So, so you have multiple data points and track them in relation to each other. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it's a very dynamic movement, the, the coastline, like... It, the way that our current, especially in South Australia, moves, um, it's like always going more towards the north. So kind of have to balance all these different data points that we have to kind of see how much the sea level is rising and where it potentially can rise. But then you factor in melting ice sheets and the Antarctic shelf like dropping off last week and it's just adds so much more uncertainty and so many more factors that you have to consider. In how what. big was that piece of ice? It was the last largest piece of ice so wow i don't have the exact yeah, size someone described of it, what it was like in you know relative to some state or something and i thought okay big bit of ice fell off that's bad and then they described the actual size and i went oh that's really bad yeah absolutely it, and it's been happening kind of every year i think we're getting a bit desensitized yeah. to all of this climate information that we're getting and it's kind of hard to differentiate between how bad things actually are and you know we're not seeing the direct impacts of that yeah it's not like when you put a few bits of ice into your cup of water and it like overflows a bit it's a much more long time frame that we're looking at and a bigger mass of water and humans always struggle with that if it's going to kill them now they'll pay a lot of attention if it's going to kill them in a week they'll pay some attention if it's going to kill them in a year they'll you know they'll look up yeah, anything further than that, yeah. it's so hard to, to get meaningful, lasting change. And thus the importance of climate communication. Exactly. When did you have the realisation that there were plenty of activists but not enough climate communicators? I think I've definitely been like thinking about it more in like the last 12 months even. Um, you know, like the last three years we've seen the school strike for climate movement become so huge and global And there are a lot of great communicators in that field. And there's a lot of great activists as well. Mm. And I was just trying to see where I fit in that mess of it all. And direct action activism is is great. And that's the reason why a lot of social change has happened. But I don't think that's where my strengths necessarily lie. I'm much more of a communicator and enjoy like writing and talking to people about climate change as opposed to picketing companies to not sign on to funding Adani and stuff so yeah I think definitely in the last 12 months and then I think probably the last like three months just feeling a bit lost with my life and um, where I can best use my my skills to influence change and yeah that's when I decided to kind of start this like ameliorated climate communication project and see where it goes. Yeah it sounds sort of similar to you know we went to a conference in January and interviewed a whole pile of amazing economists and out of that I realised, okay, if things are a bit quiet next year, I'm going to go do a Master's in Strategic Communications because mm-hmm. we sat in a room with some of the most amazing economists in the world whose ideas could transform the global economy in a year, but only if someone helps them communicate more effectively to everyone who needs to know to then apply pressure because direct action tends to only get that proportion who are ready for direct action. Yeah. Most people, we want to communicate to them in a way where we can go, now here is the policy alternative 
and you can take action on this at every level of political election you vote at. There'll be someone with a better policy that you you can go, no, I can apply my new knowledge, bang. So similar realisation it sounds like we've both had this year. Yeah, definitely. As uh, Kylie Jenner would say, this is the year for realising stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not putting that on a (laughs) T-shirt. It was effective communication. I'm sure that well, I'm sure that it was to the group of people wide. who listened to her. <laughs> <laughs> I would like disclaimer: I am not a Kardashian Jenner fangirl at all. No, but you could see the benefit of that. And again, that's the thing with comms: is recognizing you got to use what works. Exactly. Mm. You know, and I think that's my whole idea. And what people have told me I'm really effective at is just paring it all down to telling the story. Yeah. And I like my little tagline for my, my blog at the moment is like for the initiated but confused. Like mm. And that's a great thing because so many of us now have a ton of information but don't have the discernment to make a good policy choice. If we're given three policies, we go, uh, don't really have the time to go through all of them and don't have the toolkit to quickly assess them. Exactly. And it's like it gets so muddled up within economics and social rights and all this thing because it is all encompassing yeah but people are so easy to put it in like the too hard basket and kind of move on when when things get a bit muddled up for them in the last few months of realizing that you know to communicate you need to be on this have you sort of looked much at what we did about reducing cfc use and you know beginning to close the ozone hole yeah so funnily enough that's actually one of the first major environmental issues that I kind of became aware of in my studies. So when I moved school to the Australian Science and Mathematics School in year 10, we did this big science fair, naturally. My project was actually on reducing the CFCs in the atmosphere and like the impact that that had on the ozone layer. And that kind of led me on this idea of like, hey, maybe I can dedicate my life to environmental science and environmental policy. Mm. Um, But it's just so bewildering how you know, that was recognised as such a huge global issue and then the entire global community, like, rallied behind that to to change that and to get CFCs and, like, tetrachlorofluorocarbon out of refrigeration and then that made such a huge impact, like, almost immediately. Mm. But now, fast forward 30, 40 years, we're, we're in this environment now where there's so many sceptics that are so quick to deny the hard science it's hard to get that global unifying movement to actually make long-lasting change. Yeah, but it seemed to me there was some really big advantages with dealing with CFCs and that were you could give the specific culprit a name yeah, and you could say what the replacement for the culprit was and you could outline the direct benefit if you swapped the culprit for the replacement. Yeah. So it fit beautifully into keep it simple, stupid. Definitely. And I feel like to an extent, you know, we could say that that is how it is now too. You know, we've got a big culprit, which is fossil fuels and the associated companies. Mm. And then we've got the issue, which is like the warming of the atmosphere. And we've got the solution in like green renewable energy. We're just missing that willpower and that political stamina to make that replacement. Uh, See, I'm going to suggest that your knowledge base makes you think that that's a simple package. Uh, no, no, I definitely no, be not. Yeah. yeah, even at keep it simple, stupid, it's still too big. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and that seems to be the real problem now, isn't it? Is you can't say to somebody, "Here is the problem, child. Here is the alternative," and all you've got to do is 
turn the arrow, even if it costs you another dollar, is turn the arrow and point it at the other thing. Yeah. You, know, you can do it on your power bill. So, you know, communication from, say, energy companies, like, here's the option to have wind or, or solar instead. Now, from looking to do that just at home, most of their data on that is really poorly put together. The comms angle of it is terrible. They're not selling the benefits very well and they're not making what you get very clear mm. and how it helps very clear. Mm. So are you looking to be the consultant that can go out and say, look, dumb, dumb energy company, you have this good idea on your books but your comms to sell it are really nowhere near as good as your product is? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Probably like my expertise and passions are not so much with energy. That is such an important spot that needs to be. But I think two things I know most about are like, climate change impacts and hospitality. Like I've worked in hospitality for several years now. So I think in the last few months, I've been like real looking into how that whole thing can be a bit more sustainable and how we can consult with big like restaurants and bars to make the right decisions there to kind of offset their wider impact. And like you look at food waste from all the restaurants that even if it's not necessarily like expired food or anything but the amount of food that people don't eat on their plates just stuff has to be chucked yeah Yeah. and that's all just getting like tied up into big thick plastic bags getting thrown into landfill decomposing creating heaps of methane and then the restaurants are relying on like fresh local produce that we're so celebrated and lucky to have here in south australia but it's got a bit of like a disconnect between action and effect so this seems a perfect example to get people to see Small things they do every day can start having a win. Which cafe you eat at will make a difference. How that cafe behaves will make a difference. What kind of things can you pitch towards hospitality to get an immediate small-scale win that could be expanded on? Every venue should have a green waste bin. Just re- You mean they don't? No, they yeah. don't. I think I can only think of a handful that make a very good attempt to But again, there's just so many politics in the way of enacting that change. You know, you've got buildings that venues are just leasing off of someone and that lease normally includes like their garbage disposal pickup. So trying to change their twice weekly red bin pickup. Because they would need daily on the green bin because of the quantities. Yeah. Wow, so something very simple but would need a policy change at a minimum of council level, probably at state level. Absolutely. So that's another kind of like little project that I've been working on at the moment. I'm very fortunate to have a lot of friends in the hospitality industry. And, you know, I talk to them and I'm like, yeah, like this is the number one thing that we can do to reduce our state's emissions and create impact for climate change. And everyone's so on board with it. But as a venue owner, manager, operator, you've got so many other things on your list that are essentials that they're not really caring about their waste. So it needs to come from the the better option being presented, it being put forward and legislated that this is just going to happen. Yeah. And then with the financial support to reduce the cost for small business absolutely if it incurs additional costs initially yeah definitely and like the the cost is essentially just migrating from if you have your red bin picked up twice a week at the moment change it to once a week and that cost you save there just put towards a green bin pickup but it's a quite quite a simple solution but there's so many other things of like the organics company coming together and access points and how often would it really need to be green pickup every second day yeah so probably three a week? 
Oh, I reckon you could do, yeah, two or three, depending on the volume of your business. But this is another thing that a lot of people are worried about, like the smell of the rotting food and rats and stuff. But there's really no difference between putting it in a black plastic bag. And it's sitting and waiting for the red pickup than there is. It's sitting and waiting for the green pickup. It's what happens after that matters. Exactly. It's all the same, the same content. It's just literally got a different lid on it. So what infrastructure do we have to change if you know there are two green pickups a week and this huge amount of stuff is moved that can be put to better use. Yeah, so we definitely need the composting industry to have that ability to grow a lot more, to have the space to be able to compost everything efficiently. Again, a lot of communication into why this is a really important part. But then there's so many benefits that come from it because you know if we start a bigger composting industry in South Australia, we can use that compost on our soils and then regenerate our soils so they can draw down more carbon and hold more water. And it's just kind of like there's all these benefits and not many negatives at all to it, apart yeah. from maybe the red waste bins not being as profitable. Yeah, well. you really would want like the cafe compost company. Yeah. Making the point from your last two mouthfuls of lunch to your roses growing. Exactly. Yeah, we've got this cycle, all the roses out the front of the cafe. Yeah, and you know, there's so much social capital in, in that, that because people, yeah. especially young people, you know, we really do want to support businesses that we think support our biggest threat, which is climate change. So I think if we can kind of get the ball rolling on that, more people are going to are gonna spend with their dollar when they can. I know that at least me and a lot of friends that I run in circles with do. But again, silo of self-fulfilling. Yeah, but I think this is part of what we're going to see out of COVID. The longer this goes on for, the less people are going to get mortgages if they don't know they've got financial security. So what we're going to see is the extension of people spending money on going out and eating a meal rather than putting that 40 bucks towards the one day house payment absolutely because they don't believe that day is ever going to come and that's probably been the biggest thing that's affected you know house buying in australia is okay houses got dear but more importantly people put quality of life over bricks and mortar there's been a fundamental societal shift in what is my life about Will the house give me joy or will living give me joy? Exactly. And, you know, eating and drinking are two of the finest things in life. Like, Precisely. They're my favourite things. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you find that in, in climate communication, you'd imagine that you have, I, I would imagine that you are um, less than impressed with some of the consistent messaging that we as the general public receive in, in terms of, you know, um, phrases like global warming, which initially didn't capture all of what, which initially doesn't necessarily describe, you know, all of, of what's occurring in our in our climates. And so we changed that to climate change because, of course, everyone was not impressed by the fact that some years were colder than ever before. And so that's, you know, it's not what happened to global warming. Do you find that even in sea levels rising, are there certain areas that, that have, well, I have heard of, and I cannot remember where, of sea levels receding in certain areas? And so then people assume that this whole thing is like a lie and it doesn't, it's not accurately describing it. And so you have to kind of reframe the entire discussion with it with a kind of different phrase or something because you know the general public are only taking these small phrases they're not taking the entire argument in its entirety because it's too complex yeah absolutely and i think again it comes down to that communication lacked at the beginning of it all when we really needed it the first time the phrases global warming and climate change were used in a scientific paper was in 1851 
where wow. <laughs> some guys were like, they studied the urban heat island effect in central London when like the industrial wow, revolution the was just starting to happen and they realised yeah so London was warmer than it ever had been and yeah. by its surrounding areas so then they I really wish I could remember the author's name but he was like ah global warming seems like it will be a thing from the use of coal and so then, 170 years ago and people were already measuring it as a local thing affecting their city yeah and that's the thing why did I hear about that today from you. Yeah. Th- that's yeah, This is the same thing I, how I got angry in January at the economics conference, going, what the hell? Exactly. How can this stuff not be being effectively communicated to everyone? Because if everyone doesn't have a fundamental understanding to be able to make better decisions at the ballot box, we can't get meaningful change. Yeah. And, like, love Al Gore, and if he ever listens to this, please don't <laughs> take it personally. But you know, well, we'll just send him the link. He was a really well-intentioned bumbler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, he's like an inconvenient truth. I remember watching probably with you in year seven and Mr. Pope's science class. Absolutely. And, you know, it was like terrifying. And it was all like global warming, like, and being in Australia, you know, we do feel it being a lot hotter and we do see these warming impacts a lot more. But then we had snow in November in New South Wales and ACT yeah. last year, like the clear, clear cooling impacts that are happening and it is that whole trying to reshift, like refocus the discussion to climate change is now just so much harder because all those skeptics that exist are like, well, you said it was global warming like 10 years ago. Why are you saying climate change now? Whereas the, it's always been that conversation, but the parts of the conversation that mm. have been given the platform have, have said global warming as opposed to climate change. See, to jump into this communication thing, like I went and listened to that movie with my now wife and one of my former students when it was on at the Palace or Nova in Rundle Street. So whatever year it came out, I'm guessing 2006 maybe? Yeah. That sound about right? Yeah. And it was a totally full cinema, which indicates how important it was to people. Yeah. And everyone that I could hear around us really wanted to learn. And everyone walked out a bit shell-shocked, but also really committed that they had, if the option had been put in front of them, to do different, they would have picked it. And I think the big thing that hasn't happened since then is most people are too busy just trying to survive and cleaning up their own small messes in their life. Yeah. They need the better option to be put in front of Mm. them so they can pick it. They can put food in the green bin instead of the other bin. They can make a choice about which light bulb to buy. Yeah. They can choose to go solar or wind. But unless that policy position is put in front of them, how can they pick it? So I wonder if some of the sceptics literally, when they saw that movie at the time, had the holy shit moment, but have then just got so disappointed with the inability to get clarity and direction in what happens next that through sheer frustration, you go, well, if any of this was true, surely we wouldn't have been this stupid for this long. Yeah, and also like the cognitive dissonance at play where, you know, you know... If you reduce how much meat you're eating, that has a big impact as well. But that some, for some people, the threat to their values and their belief systems and their actions is greater than the existential threat yeah. that there is. Because to that, that is an existential threat. You know, you're, yeah. you're someone that's like, yeah, I support like humanity and the world, but I'm my actions say otherwise. And I think that's also like a really slippery slope to fall down. Like I was vegan for a few years. 
And my whole identity was based on me caring about sustainability and about the planet and about people. And then I found on like my vegan journey, I fell down these real bad rabbit holes where people were like, well, you know, you should buy like organic farm produce and me being like a 19, 20 year old uni student, if I couldn't get to the farmer's market and then I couldn't, I shouldn't shop at Coles or Woolies because they they don't support their farmers properly. Then I was like, oh, well, I guess I just won't eat. And it turned into this real bad cycle. cycle. And it was like low key eating disorder, not because I had a bad relationship with food itself, but it was where my food was coming from. You were trying to be so ethical that it almost made it impossible to eat. And then where where do you put your own ethics to yourself and you your right to exist as best you can in that identity of and this captures it again really well here you are this person trying very hard to understand it and in the end doing the right thing was very nearly harmful to you yeah because there's no clim so again jumping sideways and backwards simultaneously a typical (laughs) david leap but this seems an important thing that we know that if you give people too many words they get overwhelmed yeah so how you can, you know, with climate modelling, you know, when I read occasionally about the modelling, I'm like, wow, the number of variables and this is going to do my head in. So it would seem to me that what's going to be very important in communicating some of this stuff is very good visualisations. Yeah, definitely. The relationship between if we do this, this will happen. If we do this, this will happen. And getting it down to, you know, heat maps. Yeah. Or something that shows here was sea level 50 years ago, here's projected sea level in 50 so exactly. A from lot of your honours experience, do you use much visual representation in your honours thesis or is that something you're going to have to become an expert in, do you think? Yeah, so I used a lot in my honours thesis. I used this, this like uh, geographic information systems. Which yeah, is, GIS, which is what my wife does, which is why I'm interested in this stuff. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, um, so yeah, I absolutely thrived with that at uni and I, I'm such a visual learner as well. So I used a lot of mapping to create kind of these expected scenarios of the South Australian metro coastline and like mm-hmm. the Port Adelaide region and you know Port Adelaide subsiding as well as sea yeah, levels rising fast. so that being able to show people that map I think had way more impact than the 18,000 words I wrote yeah you could sum it up in those two slides and a hundred word explanation exactly. if you had to the rest was all there if someone had questions yeah but really that was your executive summary Exactly. That was your wake up, smell the coffee and stop being stupid moment. Yeah. You know, for anyone you're trying to convince about sea Definitely. Rise. And like, you know, we talk about the sand dunes and everything at West Beach, which I just feel like has been going on forever. You know, we, we developed too close to, we developed on the sand, the original sand dunes, got rid of all of that backup sand for the beach system. And now we're having these real bad eroding events happening along mm. our metro coast. And so the policy at the moment is to just take the healthy sand from semaphore and bring it back down and it's like if you do that then you're going to impact that ecosystem there and that you're going to make that more vulnerable and so where do you who do you support the most and like why is a pretty liberal dominant area getting pork barreled to save their beach but you're not caring about the more lower ses areas who also deserve to have the last remaining remnants of they have a, a not as unhealthy system Mm. Wouldn't it be better to leave theirs alone and truck it further? No, because it would cost more. Exactly. So then the neoliberal brain has a freak out. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That was capital L liberal. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Well, neo-L both with capitals. (laughs) (laughs) The the full dirty word. Oh, wow. Yeah. But yeah, I really really love being able to kind of make those maps and be able to show people like a visual representation of like what's going on. 
And then my farming friends as well, you know, they're seeing different yields and yeah. in wine as well, you know, yeah. um, they're already getting a bit of like bud burst, which they normally don't expect until spring and it's yeah. still winter. So being able to kind of capture these moments in time and these real life impacts that are happening, I feel like just add to the story and yeah. that communication so much better than me just r- rattling off like a thousand words on. Yeah, and if you can visualize it. So I'm trying to think that the Swedish guy who died last year, Hans Gosling, who's like, he's the master of data visualization. You know, yeah. If Hans Gosling had got into environmentalism rather than trying to fix society, I reckon <laughs> the world would have got it. Yeah, definitely. Because his data visualizations were so good. The thing is, he was trying to solve social problems, you know, from almost a sociologist's perspective. Whereas he's basically proved how you use visualization to speed up people's learning. Yeah. So, you know, his single book on data visualization, I think, should be mandatory reading for every modern human who can see, because this is what's going to be presented to you. And if it's not as good as hands, it's garbage data. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Essentially. he did stuff properly, so do That's it. going to be my benchmark now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> be hands. It'd be hands. Well, yeah, Amelia Hands Gosling. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And you know, especially now we live in for for the people that are of seeing. You know, we live in such a world where we're always bombarded, bombarded. with mm. new images and new data, and we have such short attention spans where you just end up scrolling these like deep holes on Facebook or Instagram and you don't really remember much of what you're seeing at all. No. You're just like, oh, straight on to the next thing. And mm. I think that has a huge part to play in effective communication as well. Mm. The message's got to be short and fast. Yeah, and toe the line of like uh, positivity as mm. well as urgency. Mm-hmm. And it's I think I struggle a bit with that because I don't want to be another doom and gloom. See, this is a really important thing. Like we had Richard Heinberg from the Post Carbon Institute on last year. And Richard is amazing. You know, he you know, has written all sorts of books about peak oil and all sorts of other interesting things. And the other book we talked to him about is called The End of Growth. But three of the guys at the Post Carbon Institute started a podcast called Crazy Town about just where we are in terms of climate change. And the problem with it was it was urgent, on the verge of paranoid and defeatist. Mm. Yeah. And you, you can't go there or you've already lost the game. Exactly. And there's like there's so much truth in being alarmed and paranoid and defeated because you know you look at in the last 12 years like 107 former politicians or politician staffers now work for the fossil fuel and mining industry and they've been given these like high paying advisory board mm. member executive mm. roles great so gifts where mm. where did where does that lie in Australian politics and mm. the, Australia's future if mm. we're always so many solutions that we literally could implement tomorrow mm. and we would not be facing the destructive future that we are. But mm. if everyone's being bought off to advocate and lobby for fossil fuel and mining magnets, then how do we restructure that? And mm. where, do, again, where does policy come from if the people that can make policy are being essentially bought off in political donations? Mm, but again, that's that thing of the importance of comms. Yeah. The people doing direct action should be doing direct action against why did this person, what do they call it in Japan, the descent from heaven, where you go from the public service or advising a politician then to a senior corporate role? Oh, I don't oh. know. That I think word. that's what it translates as. And you know, it's meant with a big dose of irony. Absolutely. You know, the descent from heaven. Amakudari. Yeah, well, yeah. like, even in, like, I find this really 
amazing considering the US is at times <laughs> the US. But they have a <laughs> like it's legislated that you can't you have to wait five years between being in public office and taking a high level advisory lobby mm. job. Which I think that that really does a lot to kind of stamp out that that corruption, not saying the mm. US isn't corrupt at mm. all. But I think that is a big step that Australia should take with other anti-corruption legislation, mm. um, which probably won't happen. In yeah, because it's the, the advisors <laughs> who go back and forth in America, not the principals. Yeah. And that's a difference. So really, they should tighten up too that's not even the advisors. Yeah. You know, we should do the same. It should both be the, the political principals not and their advisors. Neither can jump back and forth. Yeah. So, yeah, there's so many things where the victory we're going for is not just one particular issue, whether it be environmental or social. It's actually a thing about the due diligence of how do we want governance to mm. work in our country and what, what kind of example do we want to set for how to make important decisions. At the moment, all we're saying is, hey, important decisions are less important than your career move to your comfortable retirement. Mm. Yeah, and also, you know, climate change, we're working on 20, 50, 100-year scales here. So how does a short-term governance system mm. actually plan for that? You can either, you've got your budget of a billion dollars and you need to do both current social pressing issues and then also allocate some of those funds to future issues that may or may not happen depending on what we're doing now. Mm. And I think to bring it back to my thesis, like a lot of that was to do with like sea level rise and like the fiscal possibilities that local governance has in do we implement an adaptation strategy where we build walls to stop sea level rise and protect all the million dollar apartments there? Mm. Do we retreat and gradually red zone these areas that are vulnerable and basically say once you're damaged and impacted, you can't rebuild and... Yeah, we have in- to return it to being a proper coastline. Yeah. yeah. Or do we just gradually abandon everything and then mm. cause a few more issues along the way there? You know, it's there's, there's no solution that everyone is going to be mm. happy with. Mm. And this seems to be another of these comms issues. You could start on the food waste thing now. Yeah. There's the thing to get people to realise we can win. Yeah. The next thing is these issues like build up million dollar apartments. Yeah. What do we do with them? Then there's the longer term thing of energy. Then there's the real long term things. But you've always got to have all four on the go. And that's what a balanced platform is. How to keep people believing that they are empowered. Yeah. How to do something now where they can immediately see the win. Because next time they go buy compost for their garden, they're buying Cafe Compost Company. You know, compost and all is better in the universe. Yeah. And then, you know, going, well, that apartment building, when it goes, isn't being rebuilt. We've decided the coastline's more important. Definitely. And, you know, the coast is part of our Australian psyche, you know. Mm. What we're all told. I'm a bad beach person because my cane sinks. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Which takes the joy out of the beach. Definitely. Walking in hand is, walking in sand is hard enough. Yeah, I just have to go, I'm just going to walk into stuff. What is there to walk into on a beach? Hopefully not much. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe some bodies. Oh, that's okay. Just trip into them or kick them. (laughs) How bad is it going to be? You guys have pointed out many fronts on which we need to be, you know, kind of ahead of the game. And we kind of be looking at it as an investment in our future and all those kinds of things, which Australia politically, classically, at the moment has no vision 
in our policies, in our politics. And so thinking about the future economically, let alone economically and environmentally, is going to be a, a challenge, I guess, to, to get us to think that long term. But are there, are there ways to kind of make the correct choice, let's say, profitable, easy? You know, are, are we, is there ways in which we can, let's say, monetize the good behavior good behavior so the whole nudge idea put the good option in front of people so it's the easiest mm. but it's also the most comfortable yeah so it, you know how we have 10 cent recycling in uh, south australia could we do green waste costs less than red waste for instance yeah or, or, what, I, i'm saying red because it's just the color of our bins yeah, <laughs> yeah. well General it, yeah it generally does as well but again it's that comes straight back to communicating communicating that these are cheaper Mm. better options you know buying a reusable water bottle you save the three dollars fifty every day that you have used on that you know i bought a reusable water bottle probably like six years ago and i still use that Mm. and to think of that that small incremental cost that has made a difference Mm. And, you know, when cafes, cafes, 50 cents off if you bring your own cup. Perfect. Yeah, I should really bring in a keep cup and leave it here in the studio. (laughs) But the whole big pink cup gag is just so much a part of the podcast. (laughs) Oh, I'll get you a pink keep cup. Yeah, we'll get you a big (laughs) pink keep cup. Hey, that would solve the problem. (laughs) And I could just come in and get it first and then go back and we'll come back my coffee. Mm. Perfect. Hey, we have a plan. We got it. It's still a big pink cup. Exactly. And that's the thing, you know, there are a lot of these market mechanisms in place Carbon, carbon offsets as well, like when you could go flying internationally. Um, Not anymore. Being able to like tick the little box on your ticket being like, yeah, I want to like pay an extra $5 to offset the amount of carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere through me flying to Southeast Asia on my gap year. Like mm-hmm. there are these market mechanisms, but I think people look at the word like, do you want to pay an extra $5 for a carbon offset? It should be opt it out. Should, yeah, it should be opt yeah. out because people yeah. are more likely to just leave it mm. as the default position. All those position. things should be opt out. Like you're going to pay the five bucks yeah. until you opt out. Or just not to use the word tax, but to put mm. a Environmental extra, benefit. Yeah, put an extra $5 onto the price of the ticket as it is. Very easy solutions like this, but, you know, every I think everyone's, especially in Australia, has like PTSD from when Julia Gillard put the cost of carbon mm. legislation in and then it got turned into the carbon tax and mm. then tax is a dirty word so that kind of all the benefits we saw from that being in place for the two or three years got immediately unwound the year tony abbott came in and rescinded that it needed to be called the environmental benefit system yeah but we don't need to like realistically uh, i think david and i could at least point to some people who are pairing some MMT thinking together with some of this environmental policy. And so on, in some sense, we don't need to justify paying for some of the, some investment in our future politically, but on the community level, I think is more important when you are trying to put financial incentives in front of small businesses, in front of just everyday consumers, I think is where it makes the difference. Especially for like businesses and consumers comes down to the bottom line. Like, Mm. Do I have enough to do this? And that's where I guess to jump across again, like the whole issue of greenwashing in our consumption habits, you know, but our economy is based on this idea that the more you consume, the better for the economy that is. Mm -hmm. And there's Mm -hmm. a big coupling there. But if we can decouple that and not have everything so consumer centric, that would be a lot better. And I really struggle with this idea of like 
to prove your sustainability badges of honour, you have to have a keep cup, a water bottle, your own bamboo set of takeaway cutlery, your own takeaway boxes that you carry with you at all times and you have to buy all these things that are like a bamboo toothbrush and everything. Tried that, the bristles kept falling out. Yeah, yeah they do. They suck. And They're like, just not great toothbrushes. If you've got someone, like if you buy the, sometimes the pack of four Colgate plastic toothbrushes are a lot cheaper than one bamboo yeah. toothbrush and when you're on the low income or you've got different priorities, like where Your dental where hygiene you beats, them? you know, the cost of the toothbrush. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a huge issue that, you know, you go to the supermarket and in the cleaning aisle, especially now, there's like plastic, like there's bin liners that are the colour green to be like, oh, look, they're green bags. And they're mm. not. They're still petroleum yeah. oil based. It's not like they're the corn based ones that will deteriorate. Yeah. yeah. And like the word biodegradable has just really wrecked havoc on people's mm. idea of what that even means. Because, you yeah. know, oh, bio, that must mean like biome or biology or like, you know, good for the environment. But it just means that it's going to break down quicker in the mm. environment into tiny, like mm. plastic pieces. Little fragments that will get washed out to sea and end up in your yeah, seafood. But so it's quicker. So you've got a lot of competition, a lot to face um, it with like bad actors in this communication space because a lot of them are coming from marketing departments yeah, where it's it, it's the, the, the goals are slightly different. Yeah. And I think that's like not to, to harness all marketers, but, you know, they're given how to, they've got to spin a product to be what society yeah. cares the most about now. So yeah. how do we spin the, the the simple little things to be like good for the environment, for the people who care but don't have the time to look into it? That's right. Yeah, and that's what it's got to be. Yeah. And, yeah, we you know, did an episode of Blind Drunk, I think two weeks ago now, with Steve Davis. And he's a marketing guy. And, we you know, he was talking about what the best of marketing could be. And there's certainly room for the best marketing people to be working on this stuff. Yeah. But they need the data in front of them in a way that can be effectively marketed. You know, their job is not to wade through the data. So part of, yeah, and that's what I'm realising too, to try and get you know, MMT out to the world. Yeah. You, you've got to get to people who can then genuinely get in front of the big audiences. It's almost being the in-between person. Your job is to get it to people who can get it to more people in a way they can comprehend. Yeah. You don't have to get it to everyone. You have to get it to the people who will facilitate its spread more effectively because that's what they've always done. You're just trying to give them a less poison pill message. Definitely. Which hopefully hopefully I'll be able to achieve. <laughs> hey, it's a great aim. And you know, that's the problem with just finishing uni. You've got all these skills, but unless you've done a professional degree that says, I'm going to be X. Yeah. It's then that horror story of, and now what? And now where do I land? Which mm. is, I've definitely found that in the last six months post-degree floating around, but. Yeah, and what a time to do it because, you know, fundamentally so much could change if this goes on for a while. Yeah. Or we could bounce back to quote unquote normal and let's be blunt. Yeah. N normal, we could sleepwalk through it, but we were sleepwalking towards the cliff. Yeah, definitely. I do think that, you know, a lot of people... Um, have kind of reassessed where they're buying their stuff from and what they're buying and bringing stuff back onto a more local mm. scale, which I think is like a really positive positive thing to see. Um, and hopefully we can maintain that momentum. But, you know, when things change, is everything just going to snap back to normal? Mm. 
And this is where the economic issue seems so important at the moment that you know, we're now $200 billion in Australia to surviving this mess. Yeah. Now, if we do it from an MMT perspective, you go yep. shrug and there's no problem. Mm. You do it from a neoliberal perspective, perspective and we'll have austerity for 20 years and destroy the place. Yeah. yeah. So the but choices the are same- getting very similar. And environment is just an extension of that. Yeah. We could do so much now if we recognise the federal government can create money to fix stuff. We give like $50 billion a year in subsidies to fossil fuel companies. So like they don't have to pay for fuel, they don't have to pay land tax and yeah. they, they get so many free rides, but mm. because it's energy in the fossil fuel companies, mm. no one bats an eyelid and suddenly you want to, before this even, raise new start by a little bit so people can afford to live not on the poverty line mm. and we're all well, up in arms. Not below it, let's be honest. Yeah. New start was below yeah, the which is, public, yeah. you know, where it's just, again, that communication of, mm. like, we need to, yeah, put, spending money isn't a bad thing. No. Well, spending money makes the world go around. Yeah, you know, it has to be done. If you're in a budget surplus, you're just not spending money on your community and on your mm. citizens. Mm. It's all it really means. Yeah. Just to go back to greenwashing mm. really go quickly. So many companies are trying to, you know, show that they care and like putting all these long targets in place that they don't actually have to act on now. And like Starbucks was like, we're not going to use plastic straws anymore. So they replaced it with thicker plastic lids that (laughs) use more plastic to create. And it's just like, that's absolute greenwashing to the biggest extent you can believe because, yeah, they're just like, oh, we're not using plastic straws. We're just going to use a lid instead. And, like, who's holding them accountable, you know? Yeah. Well, you are. Yeah, hopefully. That, that'd be the gig. That's that's me. Good job on the marketers, though, you know. Well, exactly. Make sure that the news is out there on the first thing. Yeah. But who's going to fund the ad on the second thing? Exactly. And that's the importance of social media. Yeah. If you don't need to fund the ad, you just need people to be annoyed enough to share it. Yeah. So part of good comms is also realising if you don't have the budget, what you generate has to be shareable and you've really got to encourage people to share it. Yeah. And I think I've, I've found that, you know, I am existing on my like Instagram platform. It is majority of like my friends and people I care about. So far. It's been so far, weeks. Yeah. I know. Yeah, <laughs> come on. It'll grow. Just give it time to start getting momentum. I know, but I'm just so impatient. Yeah. You just want to um, hit it with a sting. Hurry up. Yeah. But yeah. even that being said, you know, I've posted a few like little fact slides. Of, fact bombs. Yeah. And so, so many people have shared those and then so many more people that like I have no mutual connections with are seeing that and then reaching out and asking about, well, well, hey, what about this? Like, can you point me in this, the right direction to find out so more? It's already growing. So it's already growing. Awesome. I think that's like a really like positive, up, like helps me feel better and then more. Gives you a reason motivation. to read the next thing yeah. and create the next fact bomb. And, you know, like eco-anxiety is a huge thing for young people, especially, you know, we're all very hyper aware of, kind of this trajectory we're going on and I find myself getting a bit burnt out sometimes by being in these like doom and gloom spirals but I think knowing that it's not all for nothing and that me being able to communicate and share my knowledge with other people helps other people feel better and make good decisions and kind of grow organically like that which I think is nice. And that's where those scalable things are so important. What project could be the small win to get people to see it's possible. Yeah. You know, the, the, the failure, in my opinion, since the sort of Al Gore era was to not get small wins 
on the table and reported on often enough. Yeah. And I'm sure there's been a heap of them, but oh. it's just not seen. Like yeah. individual towns, individual councils, individual companies, individual communities have probably done all sorts of things that if they'd been well communicated could have been copied, mm. yeah. could have become pilot programs. So really if that's the kind of stuff you can put up on Instagram and people go, hang on, we could copy that. Yeah, which is absolutely what I want, you know. It's so great. Well, if more states were like SA, I'm quite proud of the fact Just that Just the we're 10 cent thing, even that's a well, big start. Yeah. That, but also the renewable energy here. Yeah. But yeah. Although, th- th- then that's this is another policy point. It's like that sometimes gets turned off. Like all of our solar and wind, I think, gets turned off. Because yeah, but it can destabilise the system. And this yeah. is where, again, we need more understanding. Because to most of us, you go, how the heck could you ever need to turn it off? Well, yeah. systems can only take so much energy going through them. Mm. And also, on that point, I'm pretty sure Glencore in New South Wales, which have one of the big coal mines there, just put 100 staff on holiday because their demand for coal-fired power is so low, they're artificially inflating it, creating less to create more demand mm. by just putting their staff on holiday. So there's like all these real real cruddy... Once again, there's your next little you know, fact bomb for Instagram. Mm. Yeah. That's a good one. I might do that this <laughs> afternoon. So look, you know, it seems to me at this point, do you want to come on every three months and tell us about your most recent you know, fact bombs, good and bad? Yeah, a little climate like, update for everyone. Yeah, like literally just, you know... Keep a track of what things you've put up as either this is greenwashing or this is a good little win we could copy or this everyone needs to know. Just come on every three months and do a summary of what you think are your major ones for the every three months or something. Yeah, perfect. Hopefully I'll have some green bins to report on. Ah, cool. <laughs> that would be excellent. And then we can go eat at the places that have them. Exactly. We can record live from there. Oh, we like recording live from places. <laughs> and, and no place has chucked us out yet, so we're doing okay. True. Well, Amelia, would you like to plug your Ameliorate where people can find your work? Yeah. yeah. So you can follow me on Instagram at Ameliorated or my website is www.ameliorated.com. So Amelia, which is my name, and a play on the word Ameliorate, which means to make things better. So hopefully I can help make things better. Mm. Cool. And we will put all that in the show notes Mm -hmm. so that all you got to do is click on it, peeps. (laughs) Easy as that. Get ready for some fact bombs. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Amelia, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you both so much for having me. And thank you, David. Thank you, everyone. And Amelia will be back in a few months' time with a bag full of fact bombs. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out.